Welcome back to the Imposter's Way podcast, the place where I keep a beginner's mind and you hopefully keep on learning from all the things that I've picked up on my journeys through blockchain land. And this is part seven, chapter seven um, of this 10 part series. So you've made it to the dessert of this 10 course meal of mind boggling blockchain content. Um, we've covered all the basic use cases in the last three chapters that aim to disrupt or replace existing business models and applications. And I really try to focus on those areas where we have early working versions out in the world already um, to make it a bit less speculative there. Obviously, we are a little bit in a time like the early Internet where you see all this. We're reading the stars and we don't know which one will implode and which one will actually form to to, to do be something useful, right? So there's always that caveat, but I just try to focus on the more concrete examples. So things like blockchain based asset trading and decentralized social media. And now in these last three chapters, I want to cover an additional three concepts that have captured my imagination, um, not because of their direct technical application, which there are applications that I'm going to cover, but more because they're so interesting on a human level. So on a sociological or psychological level more than on a technical one um, so yeah these are these are kind of the things that are to come there about collaboration and about governance and about identity uh, so again like big words um, but we'll just kind of dissect them step by step today is the first um, of these kind of uh, topics which is about pseudonymous identity and uh, we'll make it a longer story again to to make it a bit more tangible so um Let's jump right in, but before one note, um, as always, transcripts and sources and links for further reading can be found at theimpostorsway.com. So check that out in case you are interested into the articles that I reference and, and stuff like that uh, in this episode. And with that, let's jump into the meat of today's episode. So we're going to meet Chloe again, who um, was trying to make a video project happen. And we had the problem about cloud storage and her friend not being able to access it because uh, she has a friend who wants to edit um, the project for her, but doesn't have access to, to the same cloud services. And um, today will be about, about Chloe herself kind of publishing her work. So uh, let's jump into the story. The, I titled this, uh, Your Name's All You Have. Chloe waits anxiously for her download to finish. Her friend sent over the edited version of the candid interviews she took with couples around town over the last months. Conversations that Chloe is proud of and that she wants to show off at the local documentary film festival next month. She really managed to make the interviewees open up about all kinds of things. About sexuality, about how to fight and how to live together in the same apartment during lockdowns and so on. Her editor friend seems to really believe in the project too, and it feels real, she says. So Chloe is excited about this. This might be her lucky break to work on more documentaries in the future, which is her passion. And of course she wants to share her work with as many people as possible. But so far there was always something that has held her back. And now she looks at the files on her computer and she revisits finished and unfinished projects from the past and she realizes none of those she's ever published. Why do I always have to be a problem child? She asks herself at age 33. Her family, very much traditional, is especially strict if it comes to all things marriage, for example. And while Chloe herself has 
different values on lots of things. She wants to respect her family and frankly doesn't want to be an outcast at the next reunion. And all her projects are kind of about touchy subjects. When calling up the local film festival about her entry, she asks if she can publish under a fake name. And the organizer, before hanging up, just laughs and says, Darling, if you want to make it in this movie world, your name is all you have. Building reputation. Maybe he's right, and Chloe has to choose between offending her family's values in public or have a career in documentary filmmaking. Or she could, and that's what we're going to discuss, discuss today as an alternative, publish pseudonymously, like so many authors have done before her, for all kinds of reasons. Like investigating right-wing groups like Daniel Handler or Stephen King because his publishers were worried he'd hurt his brand image for just publishing too much, which I found hilarious. But of course, if you read through the examples, um, where there are very interesting ones of pseudonymous publishing or anonymous publishing in the past, you'll realize that there's a lot of women, obviously, that weren't allowed to publish or that were writing about things that were not appropriate for the time, as well as, of course, a lot of political reasoning behind things. But no matter the reason, we just know that has been a thing and it has been a need in the physical world for, for, for hundreds and uh, thousands of years. So there's um, examples for, for pseudonymous publishing that goes pretty far back. And as usual in this series, we'll start with the physical world and we'll just kind of port it to cyberspace. So on platforms like Twitter, many pseudonymous accounts have already reached a high amount of followers and a high amount of social reputation inside the network. So let's take the bored Elon Musk account, for example, with 1.7 million followers, hosting live discussions on Twitter with well-known guests, and nobody ever asks who stands behind the Elon Musk parody character. And Chloe could do the same. She can establish a reputation with something else than her birth name. And there are some hurdles and some drawbacks to that, and some trade-offs to make, and blockchain actually can help with some of those problems and drawbacks and alleviate them. So let's say Chloe has a new pseudonym that she uses and we call him Edgy Edgar and Edgar for short. And she'll start establishing a digital identity with Edgar. So let's take this step by step. What is a digital identity and how can you prove that you are really your pseudonym? One cool thing about your natural birth name is that people believe it's unique and it clearly identifies you. Obviously, it's not unique, but, but you, we think it is, right? There's other people that have the same name than you, probably. But you upload a nice professional image and nobody's going to look at your CV or your LinkedIn profile and doubt your identity. With pseudonyms, this is less so. People will question your trustworthiness and imposters are harder to spot. And you see this everywhere. Social media platforms are full of fake accounts. And that is people impersonating, for example, famous people, celebrities, influencers, and so on, by just creating kind of the same account again and then pretending to be that person. So that is obviously a problem, right? Um, that happens already even with natural names being used. But that's why, for example, on Twitter, you have a blue check mark, a verified kind of status that you it has an approval process that has to happen to make sure that you're not impersonating somebody else so that's one way to fix it is to have everybody verify their identity at each platform with their passport for example 
horrible idea. It will make bullying, stalking, and so many other things worse. It's a horrible thing for privacy. You have all your data everywhere. A way more constructive answer is digital identities that are verifiable. So some way of showing that you are your digital identity, that you are Edgar, right? Some way of showing who you are and what you've done before, what reputation you have, etc. But without revealing your non-digital self. But how does that work? So we've learned before that one of the characteristics of blockchain is that it maintains a ledger that can't be changed. And we covered that bank account statements, so the, your balances on your bank accounts would be one thing that you definitely do not want changed. So we talked about that in the in the realm of, of digital gold and how, how, how you'd have your assets be saved there. So nobody can change that ledger, so nobody can just override your bank account balances. But on other blockchain systems, other services are emerging that require that same level of of safety in the sense that you don't want your identity to be overwritten either. So if you build an identity service on a blockchain, you can store information around that identity on something that can't be overwritten, something that you can own in cyberspace. And that is kind of special. So Chloe can register an identity on the Ethereum blockchain service called the Ethereum naming service. In short, that's ENS. And what, what does that do? So ENS is a bit like DNS. And DNS is an acronym that even if you don't know it, you know what it does. So every website has to be registered in order for everybody's browsers that you open. Um, let's say you want to go to theimpostorsway.com to find a transcript for this episode, right? Um, how does your browser know where to go? So where to find that code that shows you that website? And that is a ledger in the end where everybody that owns a domain, that owns a URL, that owns a website, kind of enters their domain and then every browser can go to this ledger and say, okay, I want to go to theimpostorsway.com. Please let me know which server to talk to to get the code to show it to my user. And the same um, is done now on, on Ethereum with the ENS, the um, Ethereum naming service. And it just takes the same concept a bit further. So you sign up for a unique address like theimpostorsway.ens or let's go back to Chloe and say edgar.ens, right? That was her pseudonym, edgy Edgar. So she, she registers um, edgar.ens and now Chloe can create a website with that address where she uploads all her video documentaries. She also automatically has an Ethereum payment address attached to that address. So to that identity, sorry. So she can send and receive payments for her work with the same identity, so edgar.ens. Then she can also upload things with, have a website with. She can also sign works, so digital signatures. She can um, sign statements. She can issue smart contracts with that digital identity, which would her, allow her to, to have some contractual agreements that are automatic digital contracts. So we'll cover those in a later later episode. So if you can speak, work, get paid and pay out others with one address, so one name, edgar.ens, this address becomes more than just a website, right? So this is more than the imposterswaycom where you can just kind of see some content, but it becomes an active member of a digital society. It becomes an identity. 
Which brings us to pseudonymous economy as a whole. And this is really where it becomes interesting. So we've established that you can, you can build something more useful than a register for websites where I can tell you the impostorsway.com is my website, please go there. But um, it enables you to attach more data points to this, not just in website. So a payment infrastructure is attached. I could attach uh, certain contracts that I have or past experiences, um, or I can build up reputations and followers. And those can be attached to this identity. B but okay, let's talk about edgar.ens as an example again. Edgar.ines publishes four documentaries over the year. Critics love them, and Edgar.ines grows a small but loyal cult following on Blue Sky, the open source backend of decentralized social media. And now a private kind of small movie studio wants to fund the next project, and they want to get in touch with this great creator, Edgar.ines. They don't know who's behind it, but they want to get in touch. And because that identity allows for more than just a website to be registered, but also, as we said, enabling payment flows, but also enabling messaging flows. So you can communicate with that entity in an encrypted way, knowing that you're going to talk to the right Edgar.ens, right? So now the studio might want to, but never has to meet the person behind Edgar.ens for giving her or him the grant to make another project. The studio could even go kind of fancy and technical and set up a smart contract that pays out Edgar.ines half upfront from the, from the grant for the documentary and half after Edgar delivers the documentary. And even if the studio does not feel comfortable doing all that, the social following is, you know, the, the, the cult following that Edgar.ines has established is super hyped about the projects and can contribute with small donations um, they can send instantly and for free to edgar.ens. Two years in this edgar.ens journey and Edgar has a thriving career as an independent documentary filmmaker for his or her ability to get young people to open up on camera like no other, especially on touchy subjects like politics, relationships or finances. Now that's Edgar and his career. How about your career? How about your hobbies and interests? Even if you personally right now do not feel the need to have split personas and identities, which from a psychological level maybe seems even a bit dangerous, the question is really not if we're going to create these identities, but rather what we're going to do with the ability to do so. Because these things are emerging already and we already have job postings that completely do away with the necessity to identify yourself to do so, to, to kind of do the job. Uh, this is probably mostly confined to the, the digital and um, you know IT space right now and even more so and probably more in the cryptocurrency space. But with all things that start like in a very nerdy corner of the internet, there seems to be a magical way of how that kind of seeps into the mainstream more and more over, over years and years. So I'll make that prediction that these digital identities will become more prevalent. And I'm not the first to say that at all. 
um, in further reading on the on the blog post and at theimpostorsway.com, I'll link an interesting article about pseudonymous economy in general. Um, I think it's interesting to wrap your head around this now and, and think about what parts of myself might I want to encapsulate. Um, the, the problem here is, before we jump into the summary, is just it's not about being um, a criminal or whatever. It's, it's just about making sure that you do not have to give away all information always when you want to connect something to yourself, like publishing a documentary. You just want to make sure that the credibility, that the credit goes to you for the work that you've done, which does not mean that you have to give everybody your phone number at the same time, right? So that makes intuitive sense. And the ability to do this will just grow. These services are in the early stages and the problem is that they are not yet recognized everywhere, right? This is like a passport that not, that's not yet recognized. A digital identity is only as useful as the amount of places you can go and show it off and it be accepted. So this is something for the future to come and this is something that's developing. Um, and I found this fascinating to share with you now because I really think we're in the early days and it's interesting for oneself to think about how would I live in a world with several digital identities. Which brings us to the summary of today. This is going to be a bit of a shorter episode today. The general concept behind digital pseudonyms is what I wanted to cover today. And it is really to build a coherent relationship to identity without doxing oneself. Doxing is the act of publicly revealing previously private information about yourself and you didn't want to reveal it. So for this pseudonym to be useful, it needs to show a proven track record in order to build reputation. Only then can an employer hire you for a freelance project or will your followers buy your book once you write it, right? So your pseudonym has to be able to build trust through its actions over time, just as a person does. And this is not just for the professional application. In any case, an identity is really just the trust relationship it builds with its social contacts. And um, trust in a professional sense can be built through a portfolio or it can be built through reviews of other employers or other colleagues you had. Like you have on Airbnb, for example, as well, right? For, an, for, for a physical space, you could have the same digital reviews for a digital identity like you have on eBay, for example, for sellers, right? You don't need to know the name, the, the real name of an eBay seller. You just need to know that it's a trusted entity, what they've done before, and then you can put trust in that. A readership or social influencer status or whatever can be achieved by social media, by a social media identity already right now. You don't have to put your real name there. So blockchain-based systems just allow this identity to do more, to not be restricted to just writing and posting stuff, and also not to be restricted to one closed platform. Instead of having followers on Twitter, but nowhere else, you'd be able to take this reputation with you. Same as your reviews on eBay, imagine. So you're selling on eBay and you're a very trustworthy seller. Why not be able to take that trust to the next platform where you might be selling something different, let's say on Shopify. That doesn't make any sense, right? Your characteristics of being trustworthy are not dependent on the fact that you're selling on eBay, but not on Amazon. 
And a digital identity would allow you to take that trust with you, same as your followers and your social reputation. Together with the immediate integration of the bank account, so with the ability to pay and receive money value, all of a sudden that pseudonym, let's say on the Ethereum blockchain, and just becomes not just a social actor that can speak and have followers and interact one-on-one -on -one or one-to-many, but it also becomes an economic actor. And that just makes the whole thing a lot more interesting. Because if you think about your role in society, just in physical meat space, you'll also see that um, you have some economic functions and you have some social functions. And um, all of a sudden, this, in, in the digital space, we can kind of mirror that a bit better. And as always, next time we're going to build on top of that. So I've thought this through. <laughs> next time we're going to cover another function that a digital identity can take, uh, apart from talking to each other, communication, as well as working and receiving payments and providing value, which is the economic function, will cover also voting. So participating in decision-making processes, participating in communities that come to common decisions. So we'll cover voting and governance next, um, which is going to make these identities even more powerful. But to, to not go too far ahead. I hope that Chloe and Edgar.ENS provided enough reasoning for the pseudonymous economy in general to exist. In any case, if it hasn't, let me put an Edward Snowden quote on top of, on top of this for good measure. Because a citizenry's freedom are interdependent, to surrender your own privacy is really to surrender everyone's. And saying you don't need or want privacy because you have nothing to hide, is to assume that no one should have or could have to hide anything. And well-functioning systems that empower digital identities to live their lives and to separate some information from others and keeping some privacy while revealing something else is really a fundamental building block of ensuring that we'll have privacy in the future. So with that, I'll leave you to your privacy today. Suggested reading until next time is Balaji's talk on pseudonymous economies. I'll link that up. He illustrates that a pseudonym does not have to be a black or white affair, but can be a linear trade-off. So this is really about not being anonymous per se, but just being able to control how much of your identity, of the information around you, you, you share with, with the world. So... Next time, as I said, we're going to discuss governance, um, which is a very interesting topic because it allows for motivated parties to organize themselves in a democratic or pseudo-democratic way um, rather than private corporations and deciding, let's say, on where to go next with, with the roadmap of the company, but rather um, enable the community to decide. A lot of these open protocols that we cover here are really community-driven, and the question is how do these communities organize to make the best decisions. So I think there's something to learn for everyone, even if you're not deep in tech, because it's about organizing humans again. So I'm excited for that episode. I'll again, make it until next Sunday. This is gonna be a weekly thing. Thank you for sticking with me until the end and theimpostorsway.com for the transcript and for sources. I'm just gonna show one last time. All right, have a great day.